Welcome to Lompoc Foursquare Church's podcast. Enjoy the message. So we're in Galatians and I'm wearing shorts. There are one of two reactions happening in our hearts right now. When I say we're in Galatians and I'm wearing shorts, one of, you know, some of us are saying, thank you, Captain Obvious. Um, and others are saying, you can't preach, we can see your knees. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so we've got clapping for shorts, and I can't listen to you right now because I can see your knees. And the reason some of us are going, you can't preach looking like that, is because we have been raised with a certain perspective or a certain tradition about how one must present oneself when they bring the word. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the fact that I am going to talk to you about Jesus in church, on the stage, in shorts, is making some of us go, I don't know how I feel about that. Which is exactly what's happening in the Galatian church in the part of Scripture we come to this morning. There is a place where tradition and truth are beginning to collide. And Peter, in particular, has to make a decision. Am I going to hold to the tradition in which I was raised? Or am I going to hold to the truth that the Holy Spirit is bringing to me? Is God's word any less God's word because I'm wearing shorts? No. And you get the added benefit of seeing my legs. You're welcome. You're very, very welcome. So let me, let me catch you up real quick before I get in trouble. So two weeks ago, we talked about Paul's trip to Jerusalem, where he appeared before the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, and he made a case for salvation by faith as an act of grace alone. And he appeared before Peter James and John. Hold on to those three names because Peter is about to factor in again. And at the end of Acts 15, he, he finished telling the story in Galatians 10, uh, the elders in Jerusalem acknowledged, yes, the Gentiles have been saved by grace. They don't have to become Jewish. To, they don't have to hold to our traditions to become part of the family of God. Now, sometimes for me, probably not for you, but sometimes for me, there can be a bit of a disconnect between what I know and what I do. My traditions and my behavior. Anyone else? I'll give you an example. It is my tradition every time I eat Mexican food to pick the hottest salsa and the hottest peppers available. That is what I do. That is my tradition. That that's gives me, I, makes me super happy. However, I also know that about 9 o'clock the following morning, I am going to be paying for that. My stomach is going to be saying to me, what on earth were you thinking? But the tradition is just so much fun. And it, it makes me comfortable. And I don't like to change. For me to change my Mexican food tradition would somehow be to acknowledge that my body is not as robust as it once was. And we don't like to change sometimes our traditions because what, of what it might say about us. So Peter finds himself stuck 
in his tradition. So we're going to do what we did the last few weeks. I'm going to read a passage of scripture to you, and then we're going to walk through it together in smaller sections. But let's, let's read through um, Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. This is Paul writing, so it's Paul's voice. He says, when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, that's coming down from Jerusalem, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from those people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they weren't following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you're a Jew by birth, have you discarded the Jewish laws and are living... Excuse me, let me back up. I missed a word. Since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow Jewish traditions? You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we've obeyed the law. No one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ and then are found guilty because we've abandoned the law. Would that mean Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. Rather, I'm a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law I already tore down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, there was no need for Christ to die. Take a deep breath, like, that's a lot. One of my favorite scriptures is in uh, in 1 Peter, when Peter is talking about Paul, and he says to the church, listen, I know Paul can be a little hard to understand it sometimes. If Peter can read Paul and go, what? I don't feel so bad about reading Paul myself sometimes and going, what? So let's, let's figure out what the what is and break it down just a little bit. So Peter had changed his behavior in response to these Jewish Christians, or maybe not Christians, coming down from Jerusalem. He'd started to separate from Gentiles, and he had started to insist that people follow Jewish law. So, verse 11 again. When Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face. What he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who weren't circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with them anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision or following the law. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now, in this culture, to sit at the table with someone, to break bread with someone, made a fairly significant statement. It was to accept those who were at the table with you. To break bread with someone was to say, in essence, it is good between us. Things are right between us. This is the beauty of Jesus breaking bread with the disciples at the Last Supper as he prepares to go to the cross. 
and telling us to do this often in remembrance of him. Because he wants us to remember as we break the bread, as we remember the table, that things are good between him and between us. So Peter comes to Antioch. He starts sharing meals with the Gentiles, which says, I accept you. God accepts you. We're all one. And then these people come down from Jerusalem. And Peter's like, hey, funny story. I'm changing my mind. I won't eat with you anymore unless you follow the Jewish law. So to exclude the Gentile Christians from the table was to say, you don't belong here as you are. And by not sharing the table with them, by not accepting them as they were, Peter was dividing the church between those who were acceptable to God and those who were not. And Paul makes this statement about Peter. He said, Peter didn't do this about because of this, this burning conviction from the Holy Spirit. He says, Peter started to withdraw to separate from people in the church because he was afraid of criticism. And because he was afraid of criticism, he reverted back to his tradition. Traditions can be very helpful. They can guide us. They can help us remember things that Jesus has taught us. However, sometimes our traditions can actually lead us away from the heart of God. Because God, in taking Jesus to the cross, Jesus, in going, was providing a unifying act whereby we were all made one. But this tradition said we are not one. There are some who were accepted, and there are some who were not. How many of you guys had a chance to go see the Jesus Revolution? So one of the things about the Jesus Revolution, bit of a bit of a spoiler for those of you who haven't seen it yet, is there was an expectation or a tradition in the church about how you should look when you came to church, what you should wear, what your hair should look like. And when there was a move of the Spirit among a group of young men and young women, when they were being drawn to the Spirit toward Jesus, there were churches that shut their doors to them because they said, you don't look right. You don't sound right. Go get a suit and a tie, and then you can belong. That would be an example of a tradition moving people away from the heart of God. The Pharisees are talking about tradition to Jesus one day. And I, I don't know what it was like to be a Pharisee in the three and a half years Jesus was walking around. It had to be pretty tough because every time they opened their mouth, their foot wound up in it. This is what it says in Matthew verses 1 through 3. Some Pharisees and teachers of the law of religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus, and they asked him, Why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition? For they ignore our tradition of ceremonial hand-washing before they eat. They eat. And Jesus replied, And why do you, by your tradition, violate the direct commandments of God? And he goes on to talk about how they were meant to care for their parents, but they weren't. The Pharisees were committed to following their rules, their traditions, but most of the traditions that they followed were traditions or rules that they themselves had written. When tradition becomes doctrine, we miss the heart of God. When tradition, what you do, because you've always done it, 
becomes our doctrine, a fundamental truth about who Jesus is. We miss the heart of God. And this is what Peter is doing. Peter Peter knew this. He had been there when Jesus said this to the Pharisees. God had already messed up his traditions. Acts 10 tells the story of God telling him to go to the house of this man named Cornelius, a Gentile, a Roman, a Roman soldier. And Peter has to go through his own kind of litany of all the reasons why he shouldn't. But when he gets there, the Holy Spirit falls upon Cornelius and his entire household. Peter gives a defense in Acts chapter 11 about how God is moving among the Gentiles. God is, or Peter is present in Acts chapter 15 when Paul tells his story. And Peter, James, and John go, yep, Gentiles are saved by faith. But now he's afraid. He's afraid of criticism. He's afraid of rejection. And Peter's freedom was threatened by Peter's fear. Peter had a choice which of the two he was going to embrace. Was he going to embrace the freedom that comes from a life surrendered to Jesus and the act of new creation and the new things that he is doing? Or does Peter yield to his fear of maybe losing his influence, his place, his prestige? and walk away from this new thing that Jesus is doing. I, I had to ask myself as I'm, as I'm walking through this, like, what am I afraid of? And are there places that that fear would keep me from being obedient or following Jesus? I'll give you just kind of kind of an insight into just every pastor I have ever met, myself included. There always comes a time as you're preparing a message where you ask yourself, can I really say that? If I say that, so-and-so is going to be angry. And if so-and-so is angry, so-and-so is going to leave. And I don't know that I want so-and-so to leave. And if a pastor comes to the place where that fear begins to govern what he or she will or will not say, they will cease to become a conduit through whom the Holy Spirit will work because they have chosen fear over freedom. Are there places that you feel the Holy Spirit invite you into where you're like, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can tell that person about Jesus or that Jesus loves them or even come alongside of them. Because if I come alongside of them, what on earth would my neighbor say? This is what it looks like in a modern day context. And unfortunately, in this story, Peter's fear led to Peter's failure. And Peter's failure <laughs> led to getting his ear bent by Paul. It's, it's just so interesting to me that, that when you read Acts chapter 11, you find that Peter had already been through this process. He'd already been challenged about whether or not Gentiles needed to be Jewish to be accepted by Jesus. And he had stood up and he basically said, listen, the testimony, the evidence of the Holy Spirit has taught me that my traditions were wrong in this regard. As he tells the story, he even admits that it was hard for him to come to that place. It required courage of him and obedience to come to that place. Tradition will keep us safe. It'll keep us isolated from people who look different or think different or act differently than we do. But the Holy Spirit is always wanting to do something new, and so he is always wanting to, to lead us forward and toward people. And, and Paul says to Peter, the man does not pull his punches. He says, Peter, you are a hypocrite. 
Who did Jesus call hypocrites in the Gospels? The, you think that might have landed with Peter? I mean, I wish sometimes I, like, did Peter just get fully convicted by the Holy Spirit? Or do we get fiery Peter who looked at Paul and said, you want to take this outside? I, I don't know. The English word hypocrite comes from the, the Greek word hypocrisis. Uh, which came from the theater. So actors at this time didn't have the, the access to, you know, special effects and makeup. So when they wanted to portray a particular character, they would have a face on a stick. And they would walk around with the face on the stick. So this word hypocrite means an actor pretending to be something when they're really something else. And so Paul is saying to Peter, Peter, you're trying to be one thing. You're acting like you're one thing. But you and I both know that you're something else. You're, you're playing a deceitful part, pretending to be motivated by faithfulness to the law. But Peter, you and I both know that you're motivated by fear. That is what is affecting your behavior. Now, as a quick aside, church, no one should ever have to feel like they need to put on a mask to be a part of the family of God. Jesus came for people as they were, not as they were pretending to be. So we should never be a place where people feel like they have to look, act, or respond a particular way in order to encounter the love of God. This is why Paul is so hot. Here's the thing about fear. Fear focuses on what might be lost. He didn't want to be criticized. He didn't want to lose his, his reputation. He didn't want his feelings hurt. He didn't want to be isolated. Faith focuses on what God has already done. Peter had already seen God be faithful in this same exact situation. See, my faith, what I believe about God, is based on God's character, who I know him to be, and God's track record, what I have already seen him do. Fear is what says to us, if you do this, here's what it will cost you. But faith understands there is nothing that God cannot redeem or God cannot restore. There is nothing that God is not greater than. So where Peter had a choice, he could have said, you're right, guys. The Gentiles don't have to act like you to be accepted by God. He had seen God move that way in the past, and he could trust that God would have his back and support him. But he got scared. And guys, I have empathy and compassion for people who get scared. Paul, a little less so. But here's why. The reason Paul is, not, is agitated is not because Peter got scared. Paul is agitated because Peter's behavior, the hypocrisy that was the fruit of his fear, was leading people away from Jesus. It was causing the church to be divided. Even Barnabas, if you remember from week one, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, was the first person who was sent to Antioch when the Holy Spirit came to the Gentile community. He'd been there from day one. If you ever think that you're not susceptible to fall or to be misled or to hold on to something you shouldn't, please don't fool yourself. Look at Barnabas. This is why we follow Jesus with a deep humility. God, I'm doing my best. If, if I get off track, I need you to tell me. 
God's people are not meant to bow to cultural pressure, which is what Peter was doing. We're meant to bring kingdom culture to bear wherever we are. And we'll see when we get to Galatians 5 what kingdom culture looks like. It looks like love and peace and gentleness and patience and self-control. Hypocrisy means we assume a false identity. We pretend to be something we aren't. Much of what Paul is about to challenge Peter on has to do with the issue of Christian identity. This is an identity issue. Who are you in Christ? Who do you have to be to come to Christ? And Paul says in verse 20, he says, listen, my old self was crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. What does that mean? Paul says, Peter, you need to remember my old identity, your old identity. When we come to Christ, it has passed away. Part of following Jesus means letting go of who we were. Peter, you're still holding on. You're trying to embrace the love and grace and mercy of Jesus and hold on to this cultural distinctive that you seem to think makes you better than other people. But the old me, with with his goals and desires, his allegiances, is gone, dead. And now I'm invited to live into a new identity as I'm joined with Christ, not hold on to the old one. Peter holding on to his old way of being, his old identity, is threatening the core, the very foundation of Christian identity, what it means to be in Christ, which is why Paul is so stinking hot. He's like, Peter, you can't be both. You are either a new creation or you aren't. James will say later in another book, to be double-minded means you're unstable in everything you do. Peter, you're a hot mess. There are five doctrines. Doctrine is a church word for core truths. There are five core truths that are at risk because of Peter's behavior. So when we live out of step with the truth we know, then the message we project to the world around us becomes deeply and fundamentally flawed. And Peter's behavior was challenging the truth of God in these five ways. We're just going to walk through them quickly. The first one, doctrine number one, is the unity of the church. Scripture is really clear that you and I are are what's called one in Christ. Paul says, when I saw they weren't following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws, you're living like a Gentile, why the heck are you now trying to make, heck is mine, by the way, trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? By excluding the Gentiles from what's called table fellowship, You're saying we aren't one body. There are different classes or categories of people in God's family. And if you want to join the upper class, if you want to be in the cool kids club, there are some changes that you're going to have to make. You have to be something that you are not. And that is fundamentally untrue. Listen to this from Acts chapter 15. God knows people's hearts. And he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. What does that mean? We're made one in Christ by the Holy Spirit, not by following certain traditions. And do you know who said that? Peter! Peter! 
This is why Paul is so hot. And Peter goes on, verse 10. So why are you now challenging God by burning, burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke, the Jewish law, that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? He's like, it didn't work for them. It's not going to work for these guys, so why are you making them do it? We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Can you see why Paul is calling Peter a hypocrite? Peter, you preach this. You said in Jerusalem that we all come to God the same way, in the same condition, that we're all saved by grace, which means God makes us all one, and now you're behaving as if that isn't true. And it's dividing the church. Doctrine number two, another big word, justification by faith. Justification is a legal word. It's, it's borrowed from the courtroom. To justify means to acquit or to declare righteous. I'll say that to you again. Justify is to acquit or to declare righteous. It means when, when Scripture says that you and I have been justified, it means we've been declared not guilty. Those of us who have surrendered our lives to follow Christ. We've been declared not guilty not because of evidence that was presented. Like, look, I didn't do it. We all did it. But because of what Jesus did on the cross. Verse 15 of Galatians 2. You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. Yet we know that a person is made right by God, another translation says justified, by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may, may be made right with God, justified, because of our faith in Christ, not because we've obeyed the law. No one will ever be made right with God. No one will ever be justified. By obeying the law. So to be made righteous, to be justified, simply means to be made right with God. We were far from God. Sin separated us. We were dead in our own sin. Jesus provided a way of access to the Father. And now, because we have been cleansed of all unrighteousness, Scripture says, we have right standing or right relationship with God the Father. The stain of sin is removed, and we have peace with God through Jesus. Justification is not forgiveness. They're two very different words. A person could be forgiven and then go out and sin again and become guilty again. But Scripture teaches that once you and I have been justified by faith, catch this, when you and I have been justified by faith, we can never be held guilty by God again. You tracking with me? If I'm forgiven, then I sin again, I got to be forgiven again. But when I surrender my life to Christ, when you surrender your life to Christ, we are justified, which means we are made right with God to such an extent that we will never be held guilty again. Why? Because you have been made righteous. Justification is also not a pardon. You can go to court as a criminal. You can be pardoned by the court, but you still have a record. When they look you up, when they do your background check, it still shows everything that you have done. When we are justified by faith in Christ, Scripture says our sins are remembered no more. That's Jeremiah 31. That's the promise of the new covenant. So to be justified, to be made right with God, he said, I will forgive their wickedness. I will never again remember their sins. So I am held righteous forever. And when God looks at me, he does not see the record of my sin. Not because he has a bad memory, but because he has made a decision to cover them up and not see them again. 
God justifies sinners. He doesn't justify good people. He doesn't justify moral people. Romans 4, 5 says, God justifies the ungodly. Me, the hot messes are justified. It's not that we get so good and so clean and so right with God that he goes, okay, now I'm going to pardon you or I'm going to forget about your sins. He comes to us in our brokenness and in our mess and in our yuck. He says, I'm going to take you like that. Amen. I'm with that. Peter is living as if God justified those who kept his law. That's the big issue for Paul. When God justifies us, he charges our sin to Jesus and credits Jesus' righteousness to us. Let me explain that to you. When God justifies, he charges our sin to Jesus. Scripture says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Your sin is placed on Jesus who carried it to the cross. And that scripture goes on to say that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So when you and I are born again, when we are justified, God has already in the past taken every sin you have or currently or will commit, picked it up, placed it on Jesus. And he took the sinless perfection, the righteousness of Jesus, right standing with God, took that robe off, and he put it on you, and he put it on me. Which again is why Paul is saying, Peter, knock it off. You're somehow making this be about something that we have to do. But justification is an act of God. It's something that he does to justify us. Justification is instant and immediate. It's not gradual. It doesn't happen to us over time, and it happens once for all time. Are you saying, John, that once I'm justified, I can just keep on sinning? Be pretty stupid, but okay. You can. You won't like the, you, <laughs> you won't like it because you will still reap the consequences of your sinful behavior. And Paul goes on to say, you are demeaning or despising the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Our good acts are not something we do to earn God's favor. They're things that we begin to do when we come to understand the depth of what Christ has provided for us. And out of a sense of gratitude and deep appreciation, we begin to behave, we begin to surrender our lives, we begin to serve him with everything we have because we understand he's given everything he is. Okay? I got to keep going. Doctrine number three. If you're, if you're doing the fill-ins, here's a quick one. When you're justified, it is just as if you had never sinned. That's how God sees you, just like you had never sinned. Doctrine number three, we've talked about this at length. It's, it's freedom from the law. Suppose we seek to be made right with God, he says. Freedom from the law. Through faith in Christ, verse 17. And then we're found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. Rather, I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law I already tore down. This is Paul putting on his lawyer hat and going deep logic on Peter. Let me, let me just kind of, kind of explain. Paul is breaking it down for Peter like he's in a courtroom. He's, he's just said in the previous verses, to go back to the law is to deny everything God has done for you. Then he says, we, Peter, you and I, we didn't find salvation through the law, but through Jesus. So... 
if you go back to the law, it means Jesus didn't save you. And that Christ met, made you a sinner because you stopped following the law, which you are now saying you need to be saved. And, Peter, you preached a gospel of grace to both the Jew and the Gentile. In going back to legalism, you're building up what you tore down, and that means you sinned by tearing it down in the first place. So, Peter, who's the sinner? You were Jesus. That's basically what those three verses were. He's like, look, dummy. Anyway, okay. Got to keep going. Doctrine number four. Where am I here? All right. You doing good? Can I have a couple more minutes? All right, here you go. Um, Verse 19. He says, when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me, so I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements, that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. We read that a minute ago. It's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, there was no re- reason for Christ to die. Doctrine number four, fundamental truth number four, has to do with the gospel itself. Paul says, listen, listen, if we're justified by the works of the law, Jesus didn't need to die. Why? Because his death, his burial, and his resurrection are the key truths of the gospel. That Jesus, on our behalf, went to the cross. That he died bearing the weight of our sin. That he was buried in a tomb for three days, but the tomb could not hold him. And three days after, God of heaven and earth resurrected Jesus. He came out of the grave as the first act of new creation. Peter, if you take all of that away, you've completely missed the gospel message. If you are saying it is about our behavior and not Christ's sacrifice, then Jesus didn't need to die. Do you remember we said this in week one, the core of the gospel message? Jesus gave his life for our sins, just as God our Father planned, in order to rescue us from the evil world in which we live. We're saved by faith in Christ. He died for us. But beyond that, he rose from the grave, and so we also live by faith in Christ, as he indwells us by his Spirit. Here's the last one, doctrine number five, also challenged by Peter's behavior has to do with the grace of God. Paul says to go back to the law, to go back to legalism, to go back to a standardized level of behavior that determines your place in the family of God is to set aside the grace of God. And we defined grace of God together as God working in you to do something that you can't do in your own strength. Returning to the law, returning to legalism nullifies the cross. And it says Jesus died in vain, that it was unnecessary. And it puts the pressure back on us to earn and deserve justification, which we can't do. We either receive grace or we chase grace. Legalism says do. This is what you have to do to make God happy. This is what you have to do to be accepted, to belong. Grace says it's already done. So Paul is saying to Peter, stop telling people 
They have to be a certain kind of person or behave a certain kind of way to be loved by God and belong to his family. God has already done everything that is necessary to bring someone into his family. And Peter, the more burden you put on those who are trying to come to Jesus, the less likely they are to ever get there because you are putting something in front of them that does not actually bring them to Jesus. And when Peter withdrew from the Gentile Christians, he was openly denying the grace of God. Not by what he said, but by what he did. And that, church, is the definition of hypocrisy. When your mouth says one thing, when my mouth says one thing, but my behavior says something else, which is the chief complaint against Christians by non-Christians. Well, you say you serve a God of love, but you are the least loving people I've ever met. And we kind of chuckle. But if, church, we ever find ourselves in a place where the truth we are professing is not reflected in the life we are living, We are living in opposition to those five core doctrinal truths. Yikes! I don't think Peter got up one day and went, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to live in opposition to the truth of God. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. He just found himself being influenced by fear, by peer pressure, by whatever. And it got to the place where his behavior was out of step with the grace and the love of God. May we never be like that. I'm sometimes like that. God, may I never be like that. I don't know what you've heard this morning, but I want to invite you to a quick, I'm going to call it a Galatians chapter 2 heart check. If, If we come to a place where we understand a lot about God, but we don't create space for the Holy Spirit to talk to us about us, we'll wind up where Peter was. So I just want to ask a couple questions that God's already been asking me about the condition of my heart. Here's the first question. Have you been saved by grace? Or are you trusting in your own ability, your own good works, your own morality? And your good works may be amazing. And your morality maybe way, way above mine. But the invitation of Scripture is to trust in the Son of God who loved you and gave his life for you. It says that you will never earn your way into his favor, but you don't have to. Am I trusting in Christ alone? The reason that's important is because Christ only justifies sinners. And if I don't come to the place where I acknowledge I'm a sinner, I'm not getting justified. I'm just working real hard and getting real frustrated. Here's the second question. Am I at peace and at rest with who I am in Christ? Am I living in the confidence of the one who made me righteous, who gave his life for Or do I feel at times like I'm on shaky ground with him? 
Do I feel like I have to do something to assuage his anger, to make sure he is favorably inclined toward me? If you're born again, if you've surrendered your life to follow Jesus, when Jesus looks at you, when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your failure. He doesn't see your scars. He doesn't see your sin. He sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus. When he looks at you, when he looks at me, are you at peace and at rest in that? Or are you still trying to work it out? Do you extend to others the opportunity to respond to God's grace? Or do I demand that they look a certain way, behave a certain way? Do I insist they not stand up on a Sunday morning wearing shorts? Because God couldn't possibly. Or do I allow Jesus to lead people to him as they are and then take care of the cleaning up on the back end like he did with me? like he's still doing with me. That leads to this question. Is there anyone that doesn't have a place at my table? Are there places in my heart or in my mind where I would say to the Lord, I'll accept anybody but. Could be a name. Could be an ethnicity. Could be a political party could be anything except pleasing to God. Here's the thing about not creating space for people at our table. That's usually a product of fear or pain. Bring those places to Jesus. Don't feel like you have to try to fix that on your own. Scripture says perfect love casts out fear. Scripture says Jesus is our healer. If there is pain or fear in your heart that creates distance between you and a kind of person, bring that to Jesus. Let him love you past it. Will you bow your heads for me, with me? Close your eyes for just a minute. want you to know how deeply Jesus loves you. How profoundly, how unreservedly, how unashamedly your God loves you. If there's any part of you that you think disqualifies you from his grace or his love or his mercy, it's not true. That's a lie. And if you've been living under the burden of that lie, just quietly in your own heart, Name it before Jesus. I feel like this disqualifies me. I feel like this keeps me from you. And let Jesus bring freedom in that place. And if you're here this morning and you have never surrendered your life to follow Jesus, you have never yielded to his grace, you've you've tried to be good, you've worked hard, but you've never come to the place that says, no matter how hard I try, it's not going to be enough. But if Jesus will accept me as I am, by his grace, I'm willing to be his. If you're here this morning and you would say that, would you just lift your hand high enough for me to see so I can agree with you? Let me pray for you. 
I see that. Thank you. I see your hand. I see your hand. Lord, your word teaches that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And that's not of our own. It is a gift of God. Lord, you love us so deeply, so passionately, so profoundly. Lord God, that you're willing to do all of the heavy lifting, all of the work to make it possible for us to come to you. So I invite you to do that now. I ask that the grace of God would come to rest on every heart in this room. And Lord, if there are places where we have separated ourselves from a person or a group of people, either through pain or fear, God, would you deal with that now? Would you let healing come to us that we might be hands of healing to others? We trust you, Lord God, because this has been your plan since day one. It's not our idea. We don't have good ideas like this. This is a God idea. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for leading us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You are deeply, profoundly, unreservedly loved by God himself. And I'm so glad to be a part of your family. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Please visit us at mylfc.com for more information about our church. Thank you so much for listening.